Hello and welcome to the Social Work Sessions with myself, Carolyn Smith, Principal Social Worker for Adults from Somerset Council. Social Work Sessions is a podcast that makes space for conversations about social work with adults, a podcast to support your learning, reflection and exploration of contemporary issues in practice. So I'm delighted to be back again for another session of the Social Work Sessions. And just up front, I'd like to say a big thank you to Sean Taylor for all of the editing and tech support. Also, just to remind you, if you like the podcast, please do subscribe. Then you'll get notified about episodes as they come out. And do do think about rating us, giving us five stars if you think that the episodes are, are good and you're really enjoying them, because that helps the episodes become more visible to people and it enables the learning, the knowledge that our guests are, are sharing kindly to be to be shared much more widely. So I'm going to introduce our guest for today. So our guest is Louise White. And I'm going to ask Louise if she could just introduce herself. So Louise, could you just introduce yourself and tell us who you are, what role you're in, and a little bit about your journey then into social work. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you very much for inviting me today to talk to you. Um, I'm Louise White, the Service Manager for the Adult Safeguarding Service at Somerset Council. Um, so it's really nice to come and talk to you today about who I am, my career, but also what what's happened along the journey of my career. So um, just a little bit about myself to start us with. Um, I didn't have one of those awakening moments in my childhood of becoming a social worker. I was quite happy and quite content just to go about school and turn up and be quite practical, um, wasn't very sporty, liked a little bit of art, but I really liked um, school break times and out of school time so that I was mixing with my friends and things like that. So I didn't really have any career aspirations at school. I think my career advisor suggested I be a train driver. Um, but what I did was um, on my school placement, I had to do a two-week placement, I went to a nursing home and um, I just turned up there and asked if they um, had any opportunity of me coming to do a work experience. And I went there for two weeks. And all I really did was made, took the tea trolley around, made tea and helped people with their drinks. Um, but I was chatting to people and meeting new people. And I loved it. It was brilliant. We went out on bus trips and we did love, I can remember the summer was really warm. And we'd sit outside drinking pims in the afternoon and things like that. And I thought, oh, this is all right. Um, when I finished school, I went to do an MVQ in social care. So I got a little bit more interested in the social care aspect of work. Um, but I always retained my link to that nursing home. And I worked there, Saturday job and evening job. And then when I left school and college, I went there full time thinking that that was going to be my job, my life which is fine. I loved it. It was great. We had a great time. It was brilliant. And um, we had an inspection one day from the inspection authority at the time. And I was asked to support the inspectors for the day. And, and I had such a lovely experience. And one of the inspectors said, what are you doing with your life? Because I think I was about 18 at the time. What are you doing with your life? Um, well, I, you know, I'm enjoying this. I, I love coming into work. Well, you need to think about working. So you need to think about working as a social worker. And I hadn't thought about it, but I went and researched it. And, um, you know, I was 18, fresh out of school, but I went to East Devon College 
and enrolled on a social work programme. And in the day, I couldn't qualify until I was 22. So I had to do an extra year before I could get my registration. Um, but again, I enjoyed it and I had great placement. Um, so from qualifying, I went to work as a social worker in the hospital setting, acute hospital setting. And my goodness me, it's a foundation and the grounding all in one. And you learn so much over such a short period of time. Um, and you make connections with people um, on an instant basis. But sometimes you also do it over a longer period of time, depending on the ward covers. And I had such a great experience there. Great team. But also I met lovely people and health colleagues and supported people to leave the hospital environment. Um, I left the hospital because I wanted to get some experience of working with people in the community. So I joined um, the local um, adult team working with people over 18 right up through the years um, in their homes. And gosh, that was like being released. Um, and just meeting people in their own environment was a whole new learning curve. But it was brilliant because um, you really got to know people very well and were able to understand from them what really matters. Um, so I really I'm enjoyed just gonna, that I'm just going to jump in, actually, Louise, because some of the things that you're saying are really reminding me of a conversation that I had with Paul Coles. There's a, an episode already that uh, that is out there in live that Paul did, and he was very much talking about all of his experiences in care, very much how he started out, and those those skills that, that you learn in when you're providing that that level of, of care to people in their homes, um, in care settings. And it sounds like that has been something that has been really important to you as a social worker and maybe really helped to shape who you are as a social worker. Oh, totally. I mean, when I think back to being 15 and going into a care home, I was I was so naive about what I was walking into. I had no idea other than, you know, I've got extended family and I've got some elderly aunts I had at the time, um, but I didn't have any idea about how to connect with people. So making the teas and helping people with a drink was easy. But what it did is it made me, and, and in all the options that I've done throughout my career, it's made me feel comfortable just being with people and that actually you you yourself are the resource so even if it's just be so I've sat with people when they've had horrendous treatments when I was working at Musgrove as a social worker I've sat with people who are dying I've sat with people who just want me to sit and hold their hand I've put hand cream on people you know I, it's just being comfortable to be with people and I wouldn't have had that experience had I not have had it very young at a very young age um I wonder for people who are coming into social work that haven't had the opportunity to to provide that direct care and support to people at some of the the most frightening and difficult points of their lives. I wonder if that can be learned, being able to really connect with people. How do how do people gain those skills if they haven't had the background that you've had, Louise? That's a really great question because I think back, well, how have I learned what I've learned? And to be quite honest, I've learned it by nicking it from other people. I've shadowed some really good role models in my life, my working life, who've shown me what good is and what 
is right in how we conduct ourselves when we're with people. So even though people may not have had that experience, I think as long as you have um, the exposure to it at some point and you continually respect people for the person they are and whatever they bring to, to that interaction, then I don't think you're going to go far wrong because people don't expect you to know everything and we shouldn't know everything. So it, it's about that power balance and, and making sure that um, we're, we're relatable to people. Yes. And I think that's probably what I bring to my social work career is I hope people think I'm a little bit relatable and that they can talk to me and um, that I, I might not have been through what they've been through, but I can understand what it is they're talking about. I mean, I think you do get it through exposure. And there is a real difference, isn't there, in terms of showing that you can empathise and, and understand yeah without having to have gone through the same experience yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I've led quite a naive little life, really, and my world is very narrow, but I live through others. So if people are giving me an example, I'm really curious and interested into how have they experienced it because that then helps me and my understanding of the world that we live in. Um yeah, no, I'm not ashamed of that. I, I borrow stuff from everybody um, and try and put it into my practice. And it might be simple things like, you know, just how to introduce yourself or where how to manage a silence. Gosh, as a student, I couldn't manage silence at all and would continually talk and talk and talk. And the person would say, are you going to let me speak? <laughs> um, yeah, so just getting more comfortable with being with people and not having sometimes to be that deliverer of care in a hands-on way. The delivery of care is in the care of being there and the compassion that you can show people. I'm hearing a lot about use of self, Louise, in, in what you're talking about. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's so much on the agenda in, in social work education today, but use of self is you know, using ourselves as a resource um, not having to necessarily, of course, we, we do arrange services for people in, in some of the work we do, but social work is about more than that, isn't it? And using ourselves as that therapeutic tool. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about the social work task of assessment or care planning, that's very you know process driven. It's a producer document that describes the individual. But that's not the be-all and end-all of our interaction with a person. Our interaction is the assessment. Our conversation with that person is what gives us the assessment and the understanding of what it is they can do. So it's very much about us as human beings and what we bring and how we approach it or apply a social work model or theory towards a situation to get the best out of it for people. You were talking about working in a hospital setting and then yeah. a community setting. And I just just picked up on some of the things you were saying about your experiences. But um, um, we could easily go off on all sorts of tangents yeah. and spend spend hours, I'm sure, talking, uh, Louise, about, uh, about social work. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could bring us a little bit more up to date uh, to, to how you got to the role that you're in today. Okay. So that's somewhat by, um, you know, chance more than anything. So I, in working in the community teams, I held a caseload. I worked as a social worker and I worked as a senior 
and then as an advanced practitioner as we regraded. And um, in doing that, I then became responsible for overseeing the work of people that I was supervising. But also, at the time, safeguarding concerns would come into the council and everybody would be a little bit fearful about what do we do with these? Anyway, at the time, the CARE Act was coming in and it gave us an opportunity to really look at how we respond to safeguarding concerns as a local authority. So a secondment opportunity came up. And it is by chance, really, because I wasn't really thinking I wanted a secondment opportunity. But then I was thinking, well, it would be good to do something different. Um, so I applied, got the position as a secondment. And that's eight years ago now, um, nearly nine. And um, I haven't left. And that falls into the whole um, safeguarding is not for everybody. It's everybody's business and everybody should be aware of it and interested of it. Some people really find it very difficult and are fearful of it. Um, and I suppose that interests me um, because I'm not sure that I fall in the camp of those people that don't want to do it, staying away from it. Because in this line of work, safeguarding is everybody's business. It's safeguarding with a small air. We should all be interested in the human rights and respecting people's right to choice, life, independence, and supporting them to lead the best lives. And that in itself is the safeguard that we offer people. So I've become over the years really passionate about things, all things safeguarding, really. Um, and I love it. I love working in safeguarding. There isn't a typical day. So you can do um, what you can, you can go out on a visit on one day and see somebody and the next day you might be in, I don't know, a board meeting talking about safeguarding adult work or um, you can be in a forum where you're having a reflective conversation with a social worker. So no day is the same, but no situation that we get referred is the same either. And that's what's really interesting. And I guess that variety of work within safeguarding is not just for yourself as the service manager in Somerset, but also for all members of the team. Yeah. So what, what the feedback we get and the, the knowledge that I know is that being in the safeguarding service gives people, gives social workers the opportunity to be social workers, to practice with their values, to, to pull on all of their skills and knowledge when working with people. It's almost like um, a little bit of pressure is taken off them and they can just be with people to understand through the Making Safeguarding Principles what is important for that person and what difference can I bring them? So it, it does offer people the opportunity to work with people in a much different way. Um, and you're not there to achieve an assessment outcome. You're there to understand from them how can we protect you to keep you safe? How do you want to be involved? How would you like us to involve you? Um, and the, the people in my team, the social workers in my team, really enjoy that difference of the work. Um, because it is about relationship-based social work and having those conversations. And there's a real difference there, isn't there, between working in a team where you're carrying out assessments and maybe looking at providing services for, for yeah. the person. The skills aren't the same, uh, sorry, are the same, you know, in terms of relationship-based uh, working. But I guess what it sounds like is that there are a lot more opportunities for the social workers in safeguarding to really focus on that 
I'm also guessing as well, there are probably lots of people that your team work with, Lou, that are reluctant to have a social worker getting involved. Yeah. But aren't they the best people to work with? I agree. Yes. (laughs) They really are. And we all can remember those people in our, our social work journeys that have caused us the most frustration because, Lord only knows, they, they have a view of their own or they don't want that lumin social worker coming around here again. They're the best ones to work with because they're the ones that we remember the most. Um, and absolutely, people don't always want us in their door and neither should they. You know, it's a very privileged role to go into somebody's own home and talk to them there, their own setting, whatever that might be. So we shouldn't just expect that we're going to be welcomed in. But do you know what? Some people just want to tell us their story and that might be enough. So it can be as limited as just, oh, it's okay. Somebody else knows. Somebody else gets it. Somebody else understands. I feel like I've got an ally in my corner. And sometimes that's all people want. And then the other extreme is, yeah, you might have to take some quite immediate action to keep people safe. Um, But we always do that with the person or with the people who are advocating on their behalf with them so that we make sure that, you know, we're doing the right thing for people at the right time. And I think that's what's so special about this job. And that's what makes, you know, my social workers drive home thinking, yeah, I've done a good job today. Yeah, because I picked somebody up from the floor or I've, you know, been out and had a chat with somebody or I've just checked in with them and actually they're doing all right now. I guess that chat that a social worker has had with a person, that may have been the only chat that that person has had with somebody all week or for even longer. And it's probably really important for some some people. Yeah. And, you know, it really is that you could be the only person that that person has seen all week that they've spoken to. And I very often joke, if I didn't do social work or I'd probably work in a Um, supermarket stuck in the baked beans Um, but that wouldn't be enough because I'd see somebody coming down the aisle who was looking for something and I'd be are you okay is there anything I can help you with and then I'd be helping that person carry their shopping and things so I think it is kind of inbuilt in you but also it's when we're out and about doing our work we're using all of our senses and all of our skills and that isn't about us producing uh you know, assessment document at the end of it, that that should be less of a priority. The more, the bigger priority is the connections we have with people and that actually we value them and give them our time. I'm really hearing a lot as well about professional curiosity that, you know, if you, if you were stacking beans in a supermarket, you'd be really curious about people. If somebody was struggling with something, wanting to know more, not just seeing things on the surface. And I think that's a really good point because um, every social worker I've ever met is nosy and we have to be. That That's part of our core. We have to be interested in what's going on and we have to ask those, so why is that happening and what does that mean? Um, and I think we do it and probably most of us do it instinctively without knowing that we do it. It's that moment where we can stop and reflect and we go, oh, okay, well, that all makes sense. They had this kind of trauma in their childhood, which is why, you know, we might be seeing some of what we're seeing now. So it, it's all of that, really. Making safeguarding 
personal is really significant to to how you work as a safeguarding team. And uh, I had a very recent conversation with uh, Michael Preston Shoots uh, about about making safeguarding personal. So that that episode will be up live uh, before before yours is Lou. So I'm just wondering from your perspective. Making safeguarding personal in the team, what does it mean? How do you bring making safeguarding personal to life? Yeah, so this is really important for the, the team. Um, and it's really important that um, they take ownership of this um, and that they start the conversation with somebody about, okay, so there might be concerns about you or about something that's going on in your life, but what is it you want to happen how can we help you? What is it that is the bother for you? Because actually what the bother for them might be might not be what the safeguarding concern might be, but that might be the way to build the relationship with somebody. So all of my team work from that perspective as a start, which I think is lovely, but it also does require you to keep continually checking in with people that we've not swayed away from what it is they felt they were going to achieve. And then when we have achieved what they need at the end, that we acknowledge that with them and we go, look at how far you've come and what we've achieved in whatever period of time. And what it means for my team is um, we talk about timescales for completion of work and we talk about that being quite a significant measure for us. But actually what we also talk about is that we work with the timescale of that person. And as long as we can justify through our social work knowledge and skills, why our role with that person is still quite important, then it just speaks for itself as to the rationale as to why we continue to support people to the point at which we're able to do that successful ending with them. Endings are important too, aren't they? Oh, very important. Yeah. Knowing when to stop. Yeah. How, how do you know? when to stop? How does your team know when to stop working with somebody? Yeah, and we've got people that, um, we've got social workers in the team that quite honestly will work with people all day and all night and for, for a long time. But we do try to stay quite focused on what was the concern? What was the protection plan? How far have we progressed with that protection plan? Are there any barriers or obstacles that we need to work through? And then what's your plan with them? So that people know that my team kind of, you know, they dive in, they deal with the safeguarding support. People never really expect them to, to stay around forever in a day and neither should we. But we dive back out again. But we might dive back in again if, if the risk increases at some point. So it can be quite fluid. And that's one of the things the Care Act brought us, which is absolutely delightful in the fact that we don't take a person through a process. Isn't that lovely? What it we is. do. <laughs> so lovely. What we yes. do is we work with that person until it becomes really clear that they don't need us anymore. Um Yeah, so it is really nice. Um we do need to we do need to watch it is really powerful. And we have still got things coming in the front door that we need to respond to. Um so it is very much a balance. Um, but the social workers do enjoy having that autonomy in being able to work with people so that they use all of their strengths and they, they go above and beyond what they do because they enjoy it. Um, yeah. I'm hearing so much about 
social work in, in safeguarding and the safeguarding team being about bringing real social work skills, values, relationship-focused practice right to the fore. And, you know, they're, they're, they're all areas that most of us at so, that, that are social workers are really passionate about. But you said earlier that there can also be a fear about working in a safeguarding team. So I'm really curious what that, what you think that might be about. So I honestly think it's the fear of the unknown of how good it can be working as a social worker in the safeguarding team. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because people make safeguarding into this big thing um, and they blow it right out of proportion. And sometimes that feels a little bit out of our control. And actually my focus is let's just bring it back to the person. Let's just bring it right down, take some of the heat out of it and understand what is it we're talking about. So I think it's about approach. And I think people get scared because we do a huge amount of multi-agency working. Um, but my goodness me, the strengths in multi-agency working and linking with our partners who know how to navigate another um, system or network that we don't. Um, so we are very rich and very lucky in Somerset that we've got a really good network of peers who work in adult safeguarding. So it can seem scary because it's a big unknown. And actually, that's how we start inquiries. We don't know quite what the situation's going to be until we go out. Um, but if you work through things um, very much from the person's perspective, but also never be the expert in the room because there's usually the person themselves or the people in your network around you in safeguarding that will be able to help you achieve some of the outcomes. So I think people are scared about the unknown. And then when they come in, so we've had people come into the service um, as learners, like newly qualified or students. And we've always been a little bit touchy about that, but there is work that they can do that will help them with their relationship-based practice but that will also give them that exposure to people and situations they may not have had. And they develop these huge networks of professionals that they work with, that when they leave us, they take this whole toolkit of, you know, their little black book of all their contacts with them. And I know to this day that they still make contact with some of those professionals when they are working with people on their new case loan. Um, so the resources and the expertise and the specialism that comes with safeguarding can be off-putting but it also can help you if you want to advance in your career it's a really good place to showcase and platform your your skills and your competence because you develop it very quickly i'm just wondering what you see as the the biggest challenges facing adult safeguarding at the moment now, okay. they might be local, they might be national challenges. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge from from my point of view in Somerset will be, have we really understood what the needs of Somerset people in the communities are? And are we really working in a preventative way in those communities in a really deep way? Because we could prevent a lot of the safeguarding concerns that come come through to the team um, upstream much earlier on. 
And I think some of I think COVID's helped all of this because everybody was really bothered about their neighbours in COVID. You know, we we've seen um, an, a small increase in referrals for self neglect during COVID and post COVID. And I truly believe that's because we're knocking on our neighbours' doors now and we're asking if they're okay and we're, you know, seeing the post build up. We're seeing hoarding situations. So. I do think COVID's brought us a lot. I do think the way that we're working in Somerset is really helping because we've got people in communities. We've got social workers and voluntary agencies in communities. But are we really equipping those communities to keep safe and be safe? And that's, I think, one of our biggest challenges. But it should be one of our biggest successes as well. Because I think we will get this right. We just need those partnerships to just pull together just a little bit tighter. So there's a really big opportunity there that you see working in a multi-agency context. Absolutely, yeah. Now, I know we've been talking for quite a quite a time already, Louise. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could just say a little bit about myths working within safeguarding. Um, because I'm sure there are lots of people who you know, aren't quite sure about lots of things. It's myths, stories that start to start to develop, not just in terms of Somerset, but but nationally. Are there any? Is there any myth busting that you would like to do about safeguarding? Well, yeah, I suppose there is really because you know we get we hear a lot of things in our team about how the, the different teams across Somerset are working, but also locally within our net our regional networks as well um there's just this misconception i suppose about what is safeguarding and what is not safeguarding and i think it's a misconception but also a frustration particularly if you're a referring person in so people referring in often find it difficult when when we look at something and we say but that doesn't meet the safeguarding eligibility and then it it moves to a little bit more in that actually yes that person is eligible for a safeguarding inquiry but actually there's an alternative route that's less intrusive that might be more appropriate that you take Um, and it might be something as like a review or there might be another mechanism to check something out that actually we shouldn't be putting things through safeguarding that don't need we should only be safeguarding those most at risk most vulnerable within our our society um, and I think sometimes the I've referred just because or somebody told me I needed to refer because then they're not really very helpful referrals. It, it would be much better if our referrals came from the person themselves. So that's another area that we need to get a bit better at and that people recognise what abuse is and think I need help and know where to get the help. So that that would be nice. I wonder what it is that that makes people refer to safeguarding when, you know, maybe it isn't safeguarding. Maybe they've been told I need to or I need to just in case, you know, yeah. or to take it through this, take this referral, through, it needs to go through a process. Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of reasons why that can happen. But I think some of it is they've exhausted all other avenues. They don't know what else to do. So they think that safeguarding is going to come in with a magic wand and be able to resolve everything. So there is that. We don't have magic wands. We don't have anything else in our toolkit that somebody else hasn't got. Um, So sometimes calling it safeguarding might 
you know, give it that power, I suppose, is what, what they're thinking. Uh, we do have referrals from people because they've been told they need to refer to safeguarding when actually they they didn't think they needed to. And I think that's about them just being professionally sound and competent in their decision-making and being able to explain their rationale. In terms of you talking about working in safeguarding, Louise, it sounds like it's a really interesting area to work in, an area where where social workers can really use their skills. Those, those old-fashioned social work skills that I talk a lot about, there's a real opportunity to focus on those skills and to, to really build knowledge, skills, confidence, working with people. Yeah. So we are coming towards the end of our time today, and I know we could talk for a long time, but I just want to ask you a question. So for where you are now, if you look back to when you were just starting out as a social worker all those years ago, I wonder what piece of advice you would give to your younger social work self. I think the piece of advice I would give is to really pay attention to the life experience that you've had. And if you haven't had much of one, then um, getting some exposure to life experience or diversity or connections with people if you're if you wish to move into a social work career, we work with people. So um, you've got to have that exposure and something in you that makes you want to work with people. Um, and and not everybody's got that. Um, yeah, very often, and I say this quite a lot, is there are people that we work with that I refer to it is if you cut them open like a stick of. Blackpool Rock, they'd say social work in them. I don't badge myself as one of those people. I've not got social work written through me, but I have got a strong value base and I am quite principled and I want to do the right thing. And I think you learn that through your life experiences, what's right and what's wrong and your mistakes and what works well and what doesn't work well. So I think my younger self, I would say, certainly get some life experience before you embark on a social work career. Um, or, or have two careers in your lifespan. I guess as well, thinking about you at school, Louise, you know, you were talking about, yeah, enjoying that time in breaks, you know, being with people and, you know, some, you can almost see the budding social worker there, that desire to connect with people, to be with people. Yeah, absolutely. I left school with not many qualifications to my name, so not even that has held me back. Um, it's more about the practical and the experience that you, you have and you're learning from it and putting it back into practice for me. It's really good to hear you saying that actually, Louise, because there are so many people who become social workers that they don't go the traditional route, you know, going to do A-levels and then on to university. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of us, I, I didn't take a traditional route myself, you know, lots of us have come in to social work in more creative ways. Um, and uh, being able to to really develop our career, so it's absolutely. And and the local authority I work within have supported me to do that. So throughout my career, I've had stepping stones of additional top ups, and and I've done my degree through the council. I've done my practice educator award. I've done my BIA award. So all of that learning has continued throughout practice, and it needs to. We're, we're, every day is a school day, isn't it? We learn every day. We certainly do. 
Louise, thank you so much for giving your time so generously to to be on the podcast. It's been really interesting talking with you and uh, I hope that our listeners really get something from from the conversations that we've uh, that we've had today. So to all of our listeners, if you have got any questions or any comments about the episode, we have got an email address. So that will be in the show notes. So do get in touch. And if there's things that you would like us to talk about in the future on the podcast, again, do get in touch. We'd really love to hear from you. Don't forget to to give us a rating and subscribe and uh, do share the podcast as well with, uh, with other people who may be interested. So I look forward to talking with you again soon.